Nimhe, Tanasan con Langeri, fue podcasto de Foraño Teheran, a Solari Viran Trasuzanta. Welcome to Khan Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and sitting right across from me is William Annis. Howdy. And right next to him, we have Britton Watkins. Nice to be with you again this time <laughs> in the flesh. So, um, just uh, for, for listeners to be aware, so this is the first time uh, that we've recorded a Khan Langery with, like, me and anyone else in the same room. <laughs> we always did it on Skype, even after I moved to, to Wisconsin. But um, there, we're doing this for a very special reason. Uh, and it's that Britton and his husband, uh, Josh, are here filming the podcast. So uh, you can expect uh, when the, uh, the, the documentary... Uh, Conlanging, right? When Correct. that comes out, we might have a few little snippets of Conlangery in that. Uh, so. The most meta episode ever. <laughs> it is pretty meta, I have to say. Yeah, If yeah. you were going to try to be meta, you couldn't be much more meta yeah, than this. It's pretty, pretty good. So we had Britain on in episode 97 to talk about the movie Sen and more specifically the language. Um, Sinanda for that. Um, and now, um, for some reason, Britain has decided that one stressful filming experience wasn't enough, and he's going to make a documentary um, about conlanging and conlangers. So, why don't we start by you talking about when this idea settled on your brain? Okay, sure. The, well, the idea I've been carrying around for a while, maybe 18 months, even two years, to do it, because I haven't seen a documentary on conlanging, and I don't know why not, because, you know, there are great books out there, um, there are websites that talk about conlanging, there are communities where people are doing conlanging, and everything else seems to have a cool documentary, some of them cooler than others, but not conlanging, and I find it super cool, so I've wanted there to be one, and, you know, I'm exploring this for the first time as a person who's been involved in making a science fiction film, this is very, very different. The way you do it is different. Um, the nature of creating or collecting the material is very different. So it's another exploration for me. Mm -hmm. But I care a lot about conlanging, and I've come to care very much about people who conlang. So I wanted a fair and balanced documentary about conlanging. So mm -hmm. that's why uh, I'm doing it. The thing that um, I like most about this project is that you are a conlanger. You are someone in the in the community and like even you know some of the the stuff that's out there like Arika Okrent's book is very good but she's she's like an outsider of the community and she doesn't spend a whole lot of time with the hobbyist conlangers which is something that you're focusing on right 
Yes. Um, and I, I'm certainly not a part of what I've come to think of as the old guard of, of con langing. You know, I haven't been doing it yeah. for 30 years, like a lot of the people who'll be on our film have done. But, um, but I've been doing it long enough to think that I can legitimately say that I've done it and I've been involved in film projects that have it as a function of them. And I am on the communities online, at least some of them, that, that people are talking about their conlangs and their conscripts and their artifacts and other things all the time. So I've come to know it, yeah, from the inside first. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about what I know from the inside as opposed to taking um, a completely outsider view. Now, I, I will say that it's very important to me that this documentary be made for a general audience. I'm not making this documentary to explain to conlangers what conlanging is about. <laughs> um, I want conlangers' grandparents and their cousins and their children to be able to watch something for an hour and a half to two hours and go, oh, that's what mommy does. Oh, that's what my niece does, you know, and, and understand from the outside what it is kind of as an art form or a phenomenon or an activity or a hobby or whatever it is that you call it for yourself. I want a a common kind of normal documentary viewing audience to be able to learn what it is via film instead of a book or an article in a newspaper or a bunch of pages on a website. Mm -hmm. When did you make the first... When did you shoot your first film for this? Well, I, I'm actually, I'm still curious. When was the moment you said, yes, okay. I'm going to do this? Well, that's, that's um, really easy to explain because I was off to Japan in the spring of this year to do a project for a client, a research project for a client and uh, kind of helping the client with their their business, their international business strategy for Japan. And I thought, oh, well, when I get back from Japan, then I'll really start focusing on the documentary because the schedule in Japan was really busy too. I mean, it was Tokyo and Kyoto and running around and, you know, multiple interviews every day with all kinds of different people. So I thought, okay, that's a lot to think about at one time. I'll wait till I'm back from Japan. But then I realized LCC6 is going to be happening in Horsham just days, not even months, but like days after I return from Japan. So I thought, okay, I have to have a plane ticket. I have to have talked to people already. I have to have the permission of the LCS to film this thing. I have to have all this stuff in place. So I really had no choice but to then rush around before I even departed for Tokyo. Tokyo and make it happen. Hmm. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm doing that, I might as well throw a camera in the bag and a couple of other pieces of equipment in my carry-on bag and shoot some people in Japan. So the very first footage that we shot uh, was actually uh, people who are either conlangers or conlanging adjacent in Japan. Hmm. And it was me not even knowing how to use the camera properly and dealing with whatever fluorescent lighting we happen to have in their room you know we might have beautiful japanese you know uh, clay walls but then fluorescent light whatever was in the middle of the room just because i couldn't afford to carry proper lighting and whatnot so i started cobbling it together even in in my last trip to 
to Tokyo and Kyoto and ended up with some fascinating people there. So that even that was kind of exciting that I got usable stuff out of the interviews in, in Japan. And then after that, it was just a whirlwind of of two and a half days in Horsham at LCC6 with conlangers from all over Europe and the U.S. and all the presentations and back and forth between uh, hotel rooms and and the conference center. So it just all, the vortex started then, <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I know that there is a conlanging community in Japan, but there's very little communication between Japanese conlangers and European yeah. and English speaking. Yeah, con-langers. and I don't know that they that they the Japanese conlangers necessarily think of it as a community the way that we think mm. of the kind of transatlantic European and and US conlangers as a community. I I asked specifically about that in the interview specifically with um the individual who's most um you know most officially a conlanger of the people I interviewed. And he said he really didn't engage in any kind of community like that. He's aware of a few other people and the fame around their work within people who conlang, but it doesn't seem organized in exactly the same way in necessarily what you would call a community. I would definitely call what I'm a part of online a community, but I I wasn't able to enter I wasn't able to identify that, I should say, sure. in Japan. Sure. Hmm. That'd be interesting. Are they creating languages for generally the same reasons that you're seeing? In- generally, yeah. I mean, you, you'll notice that there are a lot of languages, whether they're fully grammatical or not, um, I'm not sure because I haven't researched all of them, but in a lot of anime projects and other things, um, there are languages that pop up and you hear them all of a sudden. And especially scripts, they seem very fond of creating uh, constructed scripts to augment the the production design or the kind of visual design of anime and other things. So um, there's a lot of that going on, certainly, but I don't know that all of it is quite as grammatical as mm. has started to happen in the West. What, but what, yeah, it's definitely going on. You're saying that you, you, you can't be sure if these are like actual conlangs or just relaxes or something like that. In it, a lot of the things that I've even stumbled across just haphazardly because they're available yeah. on Netflix now, for example, um, I my, my guess is that there's some kind of systematic thinking behind them, but they're not what the three of us would call a conlang mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. a very consistent phonology and grammar. They may have worked out some phonological things, but not any grammatical things, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, again, this also happens outside of Japan. But I think there's Japanese as Japanese is very readily identifiable to Japanese people. It's not like the Roman alphabet that's used for all kinds of different languages, and you can put a slash through one letter or turn one upside down or backwards, and all of a sudden it looks a little different. With Japanese, you have to intentionally, if you're doing something visual, you have to intentionally come up with another script. Otherwise, it can only be Japanese, because that writing system is not used for any other language in that way. Um, So I think they kind of have an affinity for making things seem a little exotic by coming up with unusual scripts. And that may be, again, just flipping around Roman letters or, or adding on some extra strokes to Roman letters or whatnot. But that happens a lot. And, and then there, you know, there are many more significant efforts as well 
in in games and um, anime projects and other things. But yeah, the the script thing I have sort of noticed, but it's been hard because my Japanese is it would be a nightmare to try to read the descriptions of these languages to to, to see how much is going on behind them apart from the script, which sometimes involves sounds which are clearly not Japanese. So oh trying. yes, yes, the the Baron language um, that was created for. Sekai no Monsho, the Crest of the Stars, is, um, is the phonology is not Japanese at all. There are a lot of vowels in there. Morioka-san has done vowels and other things that are not remotely Japanese. Although the language is uh, imagined to be a very future evolution of what Japanese might become. Mm. So mm. the the um, the Av people who speak the Baron language in, in his world... Uh, originated on Earth in Japan, and then over a very long period of time, their languages become something very different. Mm. But he did that um, to make it interesting, but he also did it because it gave him a basis to start with. So he could just start very solidly and with Japanese, as it is now, and not feel bad about that, and also take a lot of um, words and concepts and vocabulary. And then through looking at the phonology over time, what might happen and applying, uh, rules to that, he's come up with a very, very, he can basically use Japanese grammar as it is today, but change all of the words. And, and he also has a very different case system than the way Japanese works today. Um, it's a very proper conlang, mm-hmm. and um, and it's from many many years ago. It's not something new. It's been around for a long time, so um, we can look forward to the fact that he's working on a new book now, and we should have maybe some more examples of that language in the not too far future. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we move a little bit more into the continuing sort of filming process? Uh, uh, not that, you know, the Japanese stuff is very interesting, but, uh, after you came back from Japan, mm-hmm. so you immediately go off to Horsham, right? In, almost immediately, yes. And then you st- you interviewed some people there. What was that process like? And, you know, were- well, that process was I- incredibly hectic because we were trying to leverage as much camera time and individual people over the course of a conference that was already planned to be full over the course of two days in Mm -hmm. in the UK and very, you know, very interesting full uh, LCC the way they always are. The language creation conferences are always very full of interesting content. So we were constantly kind of back and forth and this morning, can we fit in three people and can you come at eight in the morning and uh, Josh was not there, so Alan Taylor, who's a good friend of mine, whom I know because of the not V learning and speaking community, um, is great with a camera. And uh, we actually sat up and filmed individual interviews in Alan's room, not in mine, because he had enough space in his room that happened to be larger than mine. So we we had people coming to his room. We had set up our one light, uh, actually two lights, that we just purchased from Amazon.co.uk because the voltage is different. I couldn't even take my <laughs> lights and use them in in the, the UK. So, mm. you know, we, we just kind of hook or crook, we figured out how to do it. And um, it was hectic. And 
we didn't get as much time with everyone as we would like, but it worked really well. And I think, you know, Josh, as our director of photography, our DP, cinematographer was happy with the stuff that we got. Again, Alan is very technically competent. So we got very good things and super interesting people um, of all different ages. We got men and women. We got people from uh, parts of Europe that we wouldn't necessarily easily get if we were doing most of our filming here in the United States, of course. So um, it was fantastic. Yeah. Another thing that I found interesting, once you got the ball rolling, is um, I look at your list of executive producers, and I know a lot of that sort of, you know, you give people that title, and that's that has, like, marketing value and such, but you see David J. Peterson and Christine Schleier, few people that have been on the podcast here, and um, when did those people get involved, and, like, what you know, what support have you gotten? Uh, I know that you've gotten lots of support from the community, from, you know, everybody at least, you know, sharing sharing on social media, all your marketing stuff and all that. Um, I By the time I went to the UK, all of our producers, um, executive producers and uh, associate producers, had signed on. Um, uh-huh. And we have... David Peterson, David Sallow, Paul Fromer, Mark Okren, and Christine Schreier. And they all are not just there in name at all. They're all actively contributing to the development of our narrative ideas. Um, they're putting me or other members who are helping me in touch with people to be interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all coming up with ideas. We're all keeping our eyes open and our ears to the ground about new things that we bump into that we didn't know about before. So they're all very actively engaged. And um, we've recently announced that we got a very generous grant from the Canadian government, from um, the Canadian Humanities Research Council. Mm-hmm. And that it was only possible because Christine is on the project. Uh, she has experience with writing grants and getting grants for various Mm-hmm. Um, research-related language and anthropological research-related projects. So that's very much because Christine is on board. And I contacted all of them independently and said, I'm thinking about this film. I'm thinking about doing it in this way for a general audience. And to the person, they all, some of them right there on the spot the first time we talked, but all within a day or two, uh, said, yes, this sounds like a great idea, and I'm on board. So that was very reaffirming. And yes, because they all have worked on major films or other major entertainment franchises, their name means something different to the media, the general mm-hmm. media, than um, than your typical, I just started conlanging 17 years ago and only people on Facebook or only people on the Zompus board know about me. Yeah, they're different because, yeah. because of their name recognition. They're different in that way. But, but we all see ourselves as people who have conlanged and have that experience under our belt. And it's something that we like doing. We enjoy it. We think the community is important. We think conlanging as, as an, a human endeavor is important. So we're really all kind of super synced up in that way about 
why we want to make this project and why we want to make, make it successful. Their name recognition will be most important, I think, once the film is made or almost made and we're really talking to the mainstream yeah. media about getting the word out that it exists. Um, but for right now, they're in the guts of it with me figuring out who should be interviewed and we eventually will be having, you know, blood, sweat and tears over the editing process, which will be very, very challenging. But they they're going to be involved. You know, they're they are involved and they're going to continue to help. Mm -hmm. So what's been your most sort of unexpected lead at this point where someone said, oh, you should go talk to whoever? Um, That's a good question. I haven't thought about that i mean mm -hmm. i Just things you like who knew this was going on well i i mean there's probably a lot of that but there's a lot of that i think i think a lot of what's going on in terms of just going on, I, I know about because of, you know, watching Facebook and, and knowing about um, those things. I've discovered super interesting things that I had no idea about, like the fact that Beatrix Potter had her own coded alphabet and kept a journal in it for 15 years. I, I knew absolutely nothing about that. And I learned about that by talking uh, with a professor at Brigham Young University, who ended up choosing to not be interviewed on camera, but she shared lots of interesting things with me about that and the fact that that was interesting to her, and she had discovered it out of the blue. So there are many things like that that um, have been fascinating to me. Um, and one of the things that is important to me in this film is to show a general audience that there's a lot of stuff going on that's conlanging adjacent it's not conlanging proper the way that the three of us would would call conlanging conlanging, but it's playing with scripts. It's playing with language. You know, even if you're not making up a new language, if you write a poem like Jabberwocky, for example, or you throw a line in a movie like Echuta, you know, you are playing with language, even if it doesn't have a full grammar and a full uh, fleshed out phonology behind it. And there are lots of people who fall on that continuum. Um, in my family, for example, we have, long before I learned any kind of foreign language at all, we use the word gradu to mean something that's like not clean, it's kind of gross, maybe sticky, doesn't belong there on that back corner of that shelf, schmutz, if you will, that needs wiping off. And we call things that are old and tattered scranchopy, you know, like, so we have these words in my family that we use. And I just discovered in my native South Carolina about a week ago interviewing a 19 year old conlanger who has a very kind of similar profile coming out of South Carolina that I do. When I got his mother on camera talking about the fact when he first started, you know, as a young child doing alphabets that nobody in the family could read and all this, she, she confessed that they kind of have their own private linguistic things that go on in their family. They have phrases that they use that are meaningful only to them. And they have nicknames for each other that don't sound like they came out of an English language nicknaming mm -hmm. paradigm. Um, and again, they're not that one of the children in the family has a very interesting conlang that's based on, you know, a combination of Newspeak and Ithquil and Esperanto and a few other things. <laughs> that's, 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 that's eclectic. It is quite eclectic. It's very interesting. He's basically made a language that would be very useful in his mind to 
uh, tyrannical dictators, you know. So, um, and he he met uh, John Quijada on Skype for the first time while we were there filming, you know, because he he's been studying Ithquil for over a year now, but he'd never met John before. So, but his this is his family, and they play around with language in an interesting way, even though English is the only language spoken in the family. I think there's a linguist. I think it's Sally Coco Mufene who. It has interesting things to say about Creoles, but also language invention and his assertion. And I, this really changed my thinking. And it's something conlangers should consider and just people thinking about language is that language, right? We have all of these different metaphors for language. And if we go with a biological metaphor, a language is not a organism. It is a species. Yes. Every single one of our brains has a slightly different instance, a different individual of that species mm-hmm. and families have their own and increasingly wide, you know, the circles and get it, wider. It makes, and uh, it, it, it makes for a very good metaphor for, for how a language works because you have, you know, idiolects grouping mm-hmm. into the, the larger language group or species group. And you can have the, the weird things like dialect continuums and stuff. Right, right. We have the, the Watkins family English has these you know, slightly bluer feathers mm-hmm. on, on this part of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I think I thought yeah. that was a really interesting way of thinking about it and a way of thinking about things like dialects that it's a useful model. A useful thinking model. thinking about what you, you talk about with um, conlang adjacent things is I, I sort of see like two different attitudes occur within the community, which is one attitude. And honestly, sometimes I'm, I'm like this is, Conlanging is like the specific thing where your goal is trying to make something that resembles like a full, fully usable human language. And then there's other people who actually like will include some of the conlanging adjacent things of relaxes and, and, and stuff and say, it's all, it's all good stuff and we shouldn't put up barriers. So uh, you've already you know, talked about how in the film you're going to talk about some conlanging adjacent things, but like, where do you really, you know, stand on like those sort of positions? Well, I, let me explain why I think it's important in the film to include conlanging adjacent things. I, in, in the research that I do, I often come across, um, the fact that if I'm testing a product idea or something like that for a large tech company, it's important to figure out in interviewing people what they see as crossing the line and being being officially this is the thing and this is not the thing. So we need counterexamples of things that um, for you, George, for example, would not qualify maybe as a conline. Mm-hmm. But we're making this for a general audience. So in my mind... Uh, in order to have a conlang, you need to go through the process that most conlangers go through, and that is figure out a phonology, figure out grammar, figure out um, morphology and syntax, all these things, and start putting the pieces together. You're doing all this very intentionally, and you you probably know what most of those things are. You probably understand what the word grammar means. You know, you probably you might even understand what 
syntax means by the time that you start, or at least by the time you're two months into it, you've learned what syntax is because you've had to go off and learn something about linguistics. Most people anyway need to do that. So I want to show people though who don't do this at all, who don't have a family word like gradu or scrantropy, um, that it's not that uncommon though for people to do that. And if you, if you consider this a continuum that starts somewhere on the continuum of language play, let's call it language play or orthography play, somewhere on that continuum, you cross the line into what David Peterson or George Corley would call conlanging. You know, uh-huh. you cross the line and you're really firmly in this part of the bell curve that's conlanging. And then somewhere way down at the right end, if you're moving left to right, you have Ithquil or you have something that is really, really undeniably a multi-year conlanging project, something that's a big, epic, important conlang. Uh, officially what Tolkien was doing with Quenya, for example. I mean, you officially have that. But before you get there, it's not that strange to for a young child to make up a private alphabet and start keeping notes in his or her native language in that private alphabet. Sometimes that crosses the line on the continuum over into what I would consider officially conlanging, but it doesn't always. And just because the child is doing that, or even if you start doing it as an adult for some reason, not that strange, not that odd a thing, certainly not deserving of the kind of derision that conlangers often get when they throw their art or they throw their hobby or they throw their interest out into some kind of public domain, like sharing with friends and family on Facebook. I mean, everybody has heard, why aren't you learning Arabic? You know, why haven't you spent all of these hours learning Russian? Well, a lot of people are learning Russian and Arabic already. They already have learned Russian and Arabic, and they've kind of moved beyond that. And they have a new conscript that's a mashup of the Arabic script and the Cyrillic alphabet. It it doesn't mean that what they're doing is that weird or strange. Mm-hmm. So I want to I want to show conlanging as a uh, as a certain segment of playing with language that's much more advanced um i have one of the things that's incredibly surprising to me is that i have discovered people who not only have a conlang but who are fluent in a conlang who don't know anything about linguistics they don't they are not able to describe their language as it plays out topologically. You know, they are not able to tell you if they're allomorphs in their language or not, but they're fluid in it and they can make songs in it and they can talk to their friends and animals in it, whether those friends and animals understand or not. They really are fluent. So that's a fascinating phenomenon to me that you can have a monolingual speaker of a language who is, who invented it in her or his own head. Um, and that that actually happens and is documented now in the real world. So um, th- I found all kinds of fascinating things, but that language play started without any formal training in linguistics or maybe even any ability to go off and research it on the internet because you might maybe you didn't have internet access, you know, when it started happening. So I do think that there's a continuum. And I put Echuta and, you know, Klatu Barada Nikto and somewhere on that continuum. I mean, it's not officially what I would call conlanging, but it's relevant. And to people who've never thought about this before, 
it's it's out there and, and gibberish in a movie could be confused with conlanging. So I want people to understand if they're learning about conlanging in a documentary for the first time, a lot of what you're hearing in film, if it's just a line or two, is nothing but gibberish. And that's fine, but it, it could be something much more than that. A conlanger could have spent 30 hours or 30 days or 30 years building a conlang that does have a full grammar and a lexicon of 15,000 words, but yet you only heard ichuta, you know, you only heard a tiny, tiny fragment of it. That doesn't mean that it's good or bad. It just means that you may not know the whole story. And once you've seen a documentary on conlanging, you may be interested to go forth and find out, did I just hear gibberish in that fantasy movie? Or did I hear something that is deeper than that? And if I'm curious about it, can I go learn what the phonology of that language is? Is it documented online somewhere in a PDF or on a website? I think mm-hmm. a lot of, or some at least, conlang adjacent behaviors, as we're going to call them, are gateways to conlanging. Yeah. For me, I started out preoccupied with writing systems codes. I learned Hangul, and I got a crappy little water color brush and I was writing I was brutalizing Hangul into being able to write English so that I could write things for myself um, <laughs> right and now of course I don't do anything with constructed scripts at all because I'm a terrible designer but that just set up a, the beginning of an interest in language that kept and eventually you know leads to conlanging so yeah I think that's interesting sort of but conlanging adjacent behaviors is an interesting an interesting term. I've grown to think of it that way while making the film yeah. because i if you if you you can look i can look at a constructed script and it's beautiful and it's exotic but i have no idea whether it's used to write the english language if i don't have information about it sure. we we interviewed simon aga from um from omniglot at lcc6 and you know he's chosen to include conscripts in in omniglot because he sees them, you know, he judges them based on how relevant and interesting they are. And ones that he perceives as good, he puts, he puts up there. And it doesn't matter whether it's an alternate script for writing Korean or an alternate script for writing English. If it's an interesting, beautifully designed conscript, he puts it up there. So I, as a conlanger, can't tell whether a beautiful script has a language behind it or not, but I see beauty in it and I see play that is language related in mm. wanting to do a script. There's all kinds of asymic writing. Um, we're going to have people in the film who know that their writing is not meaningful, but they choose to do writing as opposed to some other kind of design. I mean, they could be doing designs that look aboriginal, or they could be doing designs that look from outer space by aliens, but instead they're doing writing that looks like it might be native to Africa, or they're doing writing that looks like it might be native to Mars or something beyond Mars, um, as opposed to just doing designs. They choose for it to look like writing. And the fact that people who are literate or possibly even illiterate, who are used to seeing writing mm-hmm. around them all the time, can look at it and know or not know whether it's a, a meaningful uh, script. That in itself is interesting enough to me to include it as conlanging adjacent and identify it as conlanging adjacent in the film, in the project. Uh, do you, yeah, I, do. I was going to say, what, what you've done so far, and I know you have even more <laughs> recording going on. You are nowhere near the end of this 
just the filming process, and I want to get back to that in a moment, what's the most unexpected thing you've run across? Um, and, and what is something that maybe that you, when you were going in, you were sort of expecting to see, but then didn't, or saw very little of? One of, one of the most unexpected thing. I mean, I was literally dumbfounded by this to the point that I, I just, I almost couldn't even function is the work of Stephen Travis and Tapissary. Um, you can go find a lot of examples of Stephen's stuff online now, just at tapissary.com. But he has a body of work that is is conlanging and is conscripting in the extreme. I, I knew that Tapissary was visually beautiful because I'd seen a few examples and I knew that there had been some examples displayed at a at an LCC. But I had no idea, no idea that there were 8,000 glyphs and that the language, the spoken language is beautiful and that it, it has this history of just even writing like diary entries, journals in, mm-hmm. in things that look like they belong in the collections of the most important museums in the world. You know, I just, I don't know, I was dumbfounded by his work. The fact that Aaron Simon is fluent in Sandic, um, it having been developed only in his head the way that it was, and the fact that he writes in his script fluently, just effortlessly, and kind of lives in his language was very surprising to me. Um, just, there are so many things all the time that are surprising to me. There, I discover that there are uh, projects that I didn't know existed, um, I've stumbled across things over the years and thought, oh, that looks interesting, but I forgot to bookmark it or forgot to go back to it. And now I'm talking to people about the genesis of these projects or the fact that they were much bigger than I knew that they were. We're, we're going to learn a lot, uh, over the course of this weekend about Tecumel and Soliani. And I don't, I know very little about it in M.A.R. Barker and by Wednesday of next week, I'm going to know a lot about all of that. And it's, I think, very, very important. Um, maybe as big as anything that got left behind and officially documented by Tolkien. Yeah. But I don't know yet. I, but I do know now that it has the potential to be that big and that I really didn't know that I should be paying attention to that. <laughs> and it happened decades ago. I mean, it's not something that somebody has been doing in the past three years on Facebook and is super well documented on the internet. Sure. Um, even the, even the Baron language had flourished with its own kind of fan community. And there were websites and people had dictionaries up in, in Baron. If you speak Japanese, it's called Abgo in Japanese. Um, but those sites are not up anymore. They're not maintained anymore. Mm-hmm. So it flourished as a language, and now it's not in the the popular imagination the way it was. I was just shooting um, very old examples of the Deseret alphabet at Brigham Young University in the special collections there, and it now, because of Unicode, is has the potential to flourish again. People are making fonts sure. and they're using so, it. For people who don't know what the Deseret Alphabet is, um, one of Brigham Young's, I think it was in his period, um, 
around the same time, late 1800s, there was this uh, passion for reformed English spelling systems, some which looked very much like English, but with some changes, some that were radically different. One of those was created within the Mormon church and used primers where primers were produced. The Mormon, uh, the Book of Mormon was transcripted into this language. Um, we have diaries. It's really interesting. Um, historically, it gives us some insights into how English was pronounced at the time. Mm-hmm. And someone did Hopi field work using um, the Desert Alphabet, uh, which also uh, gives us some interesting uh, insights. Dirk Elzing uncovered that, right? He... Yes, um, yeah, I mean, he's, uh, he's done work on it. I don't know if he uncovered it, but... Uh, or he, he, he found the grammar that somebody did and he was doing work on it, yeah. He, he found, well, the journal of uh, yeah. someone who was an avid fan of learning and using the, the script. And he happened to also be a missionary to the Hopi. So okay. that's, you know, that's the connection between, um, there being Hopi recorded uh, from the time period in the script and, and English also. Right. You know, there's a, there's a variation in, um, in English vowel tracking that was relevant to the English of, of the British Isles and the East Coast and not so much a function of even the English that was spoken in Utah mm-hmm. at the time. But you see that there was, there were still these ghosts of vowels that had coalesced, um, mm. from between the East Coast and, and the Salt Lake City Valley. So, um, yeah, fascinating stuff that, that makes it both conlanging adjacent and potentially important for linguistics. You know, there's all kind of overlap. One thing I want to ask you, you've talked about You've interviewed a few non-conlangers. Specifically, I'm, I'm interested in, you did interview Jason Momoa, mm-hmm. who is, he's an actor who performed in a conlang that presume, I presume he didn't really understand. I actually am interested, and I'll, I'll be interested when I watch the movie in that perspective too, someone who, who's, who's also outside and is, is sort of, you know, Encountering Conlangs through that, you know, through, you know, it was his job, basically. Um, like what, what, what interesting things came out of that or out of that interview specifically? Well, I mean, he did say, and we even included it because we thought it was important in, in our promotional, our first really public promotional video for the project. He, he, it was daunting to him. I think when he got the part, you know, he actually, um, perform part of the haka to get the part, mm-hmm. you know, to, to come across as fierce enough and whatnot. So he understood the importance of presenting a different cultural outlook to these casting directors <laughs> or whatnot to get the part. Um, but he didn't realize that all the dialogue, absolutely every word that he would speak would be in Dothraki. And then when he came to realize it, it was like, oh, wow, this is not exactly (laughs) what I knew I was signing up for, but hey, why not? You know, this is great. So he committed to working with David's recordings and just go doing it full blast. And he says on camera for us and very genuinely authentically without any prompting from us but it made the character i mean he Uh understands that 
Khal Drogo is not exactly the same character in terms of authenticity and realism for the audience if he's not speaking a grammatical language that is it is consistent across episode and episode and scene after scene and he understands that his accent being the real one and the authentic one while Daenerys's accent is flawed because she's learned Dothraki as a third or fourth language or whatever language it is to yeah. her that 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 lends authenticity to Game of Thrones fans so he totally without learning about you know any kind of animacy in Dothraki <laughs> and you know whether he probably doesn't know that Dothraki don't consider a duck to be animate you know because it's such a small animal but he that doesn't matter he he committed to learning the lines the way they were prepared for him and he understands that they're being grammatical and being proper and being done by a proper conlanger like David um, is really important to to authenticity. Mm-hmm. So that's that was nice to know that he understood that. I, I'm I'm glad to hear that that's uh, that's that's something that he realized. That I hope that's I think that is something that's spreading a little bit through the film industry. If the evidence of more and more films looking for conlangers is is anything to go by but and tv shows and tv TV shows shows, and video games and there are all kinds of as the internet and other technological innovations morph entertainment and the way we spend our non-money producing time into other activities there are more and more and more opportunities for genuine, deep, authentic, constructed languages to find themselves in into find themselves in the authenticity paradigm, yeah. the authenticity uh, layer of a production, whether it's a game production, um, William has a lot of experience with that, or a film or a TV show, or a graphic novel, or anything yeah. else that has the potential to use language in a world building fashion, that makes it better, you know, it's, that makes it deeper, that makes it more interesting. And it's it's such, like, I mean, this is a problem, and I'm thinking about this problem because you're here interviewing us for stuff, is what is the best metaphor of existing art form to conlanging? And it's very hard to come up with one that really applies widely because the the marketing, one of the marketing people for the Avatar behemoth, Gave a talk to a, a, an industry group, and it's online. You can see it talking about the ways in which having a language and letting the fans learn that language is a way of engaging an intellectual or entertainment mm-hmm. property as well. And good set design doesn't do that, although cosplayers try. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not like, here's the pattern for Daenerys's dress. That's not being given out to people. The, the, yeah, the no, costume. We're not saying, here's how you make the swords from Lord of the Rings. None of that's being given out. Yeah. Um, but a conlang is a completely different way to get into um, fandom mm-hmm. or whatever, right? People learning Esperanto are still motivated by an idea. It's simply not the same as fandom, but something that makes people passionate 
language provides, and a conlang provides another way for them to interact with that that I don't think of any other part of the production doing, apart from simply watching the thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And and more than that, like fully appreciating a conlang more than a lot of other requires a different kind of effort, a little mm. different kind of intellectual effort than other forms of art. Like, yes, I could, I can study art history and, and art and understand a Picasso painting better than a somebody from off the street, but somebody from off the street can walk in and look at it and get the full experience of the painting. You know, somebody, you know, sitting in their movie theater sit, seat listening to Natvi, they can get a little bit of the experience of what the language sounds like. Mm-hmm. But that's about it. That's about all you can do without going in and starting an, starting to analyze examples and trying to find materials on the grammar and all sure, that stuff. Sure. They but, kind of do it in the movie, right, where they're trying to explain well, well not the Ikami and this greeting. What does this mm-hmm. greeting mean? So mm-hmm. that intersection between Culture and language was certainly brought up in the movie, yeah. and considering everything else that ended up on the cutting room but, floor, I'm glad to have seen that. You're right, most people it's just going to be a decoration, but I'm speaking specifically I mean, about people yeah. who decide to engage more. Yeah. And there's there are different levels of engagement. So if you have a franchise, you have a property uh-huh. that has a legitimate conlang behind it, with a lexicon of 400 words or 4,000 words. I mean, it, it, in most cases, for most people who are going to be fans of that franchise, it doesn't matter whether it's 400 words or 40 words in some cases. But, but if it has a beautiful orthography, if part of the language are interesting, um, unusual takes on maxims or, or cultural uh, approaches to things. If you have something as iconic as live long and prosper, then you get fans who are never going to learn the proper phonology. They are never going to learn um, the the grammar behind um, what has been kind of re-understood as the grammar of diftor hesmusma, you know, for, for live long and prosper, which is the first kind of canonical on-screen example of uh-huh. Vulcan that we really had. Um, they don't care that perhaps Tor is playing a verbal role in that sentence, but they really might want it tattooed down their spine. <laughs> and they really might want something very personal written in very proper Quenya grammar in a band and Tengwar around their upper arm something about their grandmother who was very, very important to them, and they want it to be grammatical, and they want to learn how to pronounce what that tattoo says correctly. They don't need to learn any other sounds out of Quenya that are not in their tattoo, but they want to know how to tell people they meet at cons or their first lover when they take their sleeve off, and there it is, exactly what it says and why it says that and why they chose to do it in Tengwar. So there are all kinds of levels of engagement. In the same way, there's a continuum for me of conlanging and conlanging adjacent things. There are people wanting to engage at different levels. And I don't see how you can go wrong with starting out with a proper conlang 
And maybe there are only 25 people in the world who can speak it fluently, but there are probably 2,500 people in it who can quote two or three maxims in it that happen to be grammatical. And then there might be 25,000 people who have tattoos on themselves in the script because it's beautiful and it matches the way the language works really well. All day, every day, David Peterson is getting Tumblr ass for people with asking for, <laughs> for tattoo. tattoo translations. Oh, yes. you can't the believe that I am so far behind on tattoo work that I've been doing voluntarily for, for people. For Vulcan? For Vulcan stuff for years <laughs> now. And that Vulcan stuff, people understand because I send everybody a disclaimer. I say, this is not canonical in the It's sense nuts. that you understand canonicity with the Star Trek franchise. I mean, I'm like, this. The one day CBS or Paramount may decide, okay, we're publishing the definitive book on the Vulcan script, and it may be done by some person who has absolutely nothing to do with me. But that mm -hmm. doesn't matter to a lot of these people. They, they, they see that what they're getting is there is a fan base who understands these words that are being incorporated into their tattoo and the the fan base um who love star trek because they find the designs beautiful have embraced it and they're making jewelry out of it and they're getting tattoos and they're doing all kinds of other stuff because they crave that attachment to their franchise and to the other people in the community who right. also love the franchise. Right. I think that's right. I think, yeah, you get a situation where the entire language is a shibboleth rather than a particular word. <laughs> right? It's a sign of, I am a member of this group, right. right? There are many, 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 People yes. who know little teeny bits of not the, not because they're interested in producing the language fluently, but to say, I identify with this community that has yeah. advanced mm -hmm. um, around That's, this. And yeah. not many entertainment properties are going to arouse the sort of devotion as Lord of the Rings or Star Trek or... Or Avatar these days. The, like, the other thing that's important to realize, I think there's something also going on now with the modern franchises and the way economics work with entertainment these days that has parallels to uh, Italy many hundreds of years ago when you needed a patron. You need a patron who has the money, who has the time, the interest, and the patience if you want something that is going to be hanging on a museum wall 500 years later, you know, you need, you, there's a certain kind of pairing that used to go on in that, that mentality. And that's happening today with, with conlanging in some cases with entertainment franchises. And some people end up being attached as the official conlanger working on those things. And then other people don't. And there are initiatives with the jobs board at the LCS and other things for that mm -hmm. to happen. And then there's just the random chaos of the universe in which, Somebody's going to call the head of the department in linguistics and somebody who's already there, who's already doing conlanging <laughs> on top of teaching a 300 level course in, in linguistics that involves conlanging, um, is, is going to end up interviewed for that and doing it. I mean, that's just, it's a part of the, you know, the fray, if you will, mm -hmm. of what's going on. Yeah. But if you, one thing is for sure that if you have done what you're capable of doing, if you have designed what you're capable of doing and you've put it out there and you've talked about it and all of your colleagues and all of your friends and all of your family know that you're doing it and you're proud of it, you're not ashamed of it, you're not hiding away in a closet, you know, with a tiny light on developing your conscript. 
um, the more you have it out there, the more visibility you have, the more likely it is that some patron is going to stumble across you if it's one of your goals with your conlanging to be attached to an entertainment franchise or to do it professionally, even if you're even if even if that was a single project that you did in your life and it was particularly um, meaningful to you, that that can be okay. I think they're not going to be a whole lot of David Petersons out there who that's all that they do. I mean, that's just that's not. There are not a lot of Rembrandts out there either. You know, there are not a lot of people who end up just able to to live off of their passion. But that doesn't mean that you can't integrate it into every day of your life and every facet of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just spent all this time with Trent Pearson, who who takes even like small, just random happenings in his life and takes those and transforms those into memories by by turning them into some kind of artifact or object that has attachment to his worldview or his Idrani language. And he chooses, oh, well, this particular thing happened in this way, so I'm going to take this script that's, that I associate with Idrani, and the, the, these words or this, these phrases, and the, they are going to be a part of this physical artifact that is going to live longer than I do, you know, if, if it's properly taken care of. And it's going to be a memory for the time that I'm alive, and then it'll be a physical thing, and I'm using it as a platform for carrying my language via my script into the world beyond my death, even. I mean, if you can find meaning in that, in doing that, you you can find all the meaning you need to do conlanging. You know, you don't need a Hollywood production behind you to have that kind of meaning if, if you find your way and you're really really happy with yourself and the activities that you do they can you can weave your conlanging into every minute of every day of your life right. how long have we been we've been talking for quite a while so i have i have some wrap-up questions yeah okay so you have been traveling all over and will continue to be traveling. And how many hours of film do you have in the can? We morning? haven't counted. Honestly, okay. we haven't counted. I mean... <clears throat> so the, the, the follow-up question is, the documentary, unless it turns into some horrible art film extravaganza, four hours is going to be between an hour and a half and two hours. What yes. Do you have plans to make use of interesting stuff but just couldn't be fit into the narrative structure mm-hmm. of the... I, I would say we have a goal to do that. Mm. I mean, plans would mean that our, I could articulate for you exactly what right. we were going to mm-hmm. do, and I can't yet because it depends on crowdfunding that we haven't done yet. Right. It depends on the possibility that some patron franchise might come across this project accidentally, or we might reach out to them and say, we've got something much better than we even thought we were going to have. And are you interested in making it an exclusive and becoming a distribution platform globally for it? We don't know yet exactly what what will happen, but we are going to take probably what will be between 150 to 175, maybe even 200 hours of footage and cut it down into a film that is absolutely not longer than two hours. Because if it's longer than two hours, it is unwieldy, unwieldy for the audience. Right. So it will probably be roughly an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes long. And 
editing that down is going to be extremely challenging. What we are doing in order to know that we can supplement some of that cutting room, quote unquote, cutting room floor stuff is a book project, which guess who has signed up to be the editor for it? That would be me. Yes. (laughs) Mr. Annis has agreed to take the stuff that we absolutely don't feel we can part with and put it into a companion book to the film. So that's one of the things that we're going to do. And then for all the other precious tidbits that are really lend themselves more towards video, we have the option for bonus materials on DVDs and Blu-rays. We have the option for little mini videos on the website for the project or possibly even depending on how licensing agreements might work out, they might even be able to go up on YouTube. I mean, I don't, we don't know yet, but we know that we have lots of precious stuff, all of which is not going to fit into a film that's an hour and a half to two hours long. And we're thinking about what that is. I mean, jokingly, we, we were either even talking the other day about, well, if The Hobbit can be four movies, <laughs> certainly 200 hours of Con Langing documentary could end up in three and a half or four films instead of one. So we don't know yet what we're going to do with all of it, but you're, you're, we're, we're going to treat it with the respect that it deserves mm-hmm. and do the best that we can with the, the patronage, the resources that we have available to us. This podcast is Minimally edited, which I'm sure you've, you've, you've realized having been on there and then probably listened to yourself. It's so, I can't imagine taking 150, 175 hours of footage and cutting it down to less than two. So. Neither, yeah. neither can I, <laughs> but I'm not going to do it. Josh is going to do it. Yeah, that's And good. Josh is going to do it because he has experience with editing. He's also going to do it because this film is for a general audience, not for conlangers. Right. So I definitely, and the rest of the producers will definitely, um, have some say in, in the final edit, but the first pass, the first major pass, the, this film is 75 to 80 to 85% done kind of pass. We are going to trust Josh as in the, the mode, the manner of a traditional editor, um, to make some really tough decisions. And okay. that means that not everything that a conlanger would necessarily put into this film is going to be in this film. But it does mean that the broad strokes of the curation are all happening by conlangers. I mean, I'm figuring out the bulk of all questions that are asked on the film, not Josh. But he's then going to take what a non-conlanging audience, but an intellectually stimulated and interested audience would want to see and put that in the first major cut. And then there will be lots of gnashing of teeth and tears and like eventually hopefully maybe by the spring of 2016 uh we will have a movie that's ready for a general audience to watch and i am 93.10 percent sure that a conlanging audience is also going to find this movie really really interesting well we'll we'll be watching that and i you know william is doing your book I, I'll be willing to do whatever I can. At least I can do promotion through the podcast, uh, as, you know, as small as our audience is. Hey, a few hundred listeners. That's, yeah. that's a little, a little bit extra. So it's you mentioned been, a Kickstarter? 
We yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it might be Indiegogo. I don't know what platform we're going to mm-hmm. use yet. Um, because of the grant and because of some timing associated with the grant and waiting for that, and even because of the fact that we are essentially a crew of two mm-hmm. flying around on airplanes, you know, sometimes eighteen hours between flights. Um, we we only we have limited resources to make that happen, but we are going to have some intern power and some other stuff because of the grant that will help. And we're in the process of beginning to start that and organize that. So um, we had hoped that the the Kickstarter or the Indiegogo campaign or whatnot might be running already, um, but it's definitely coming before before the end of the year and probably before we get too deep into the fall. Okay. Okay. So please be on the lookout for that. And if you want the project to be bigger and bigger and more and more, and you want all those hours of extra footage and whatnot to be available in some kind of format, please come help us and support us because that, that'll be a part of making that happen. All right. Um, well, I guess we'll need to uh, wrap this up. I will say, you know, if there are clips from this episode showing on the Conlangy film, I will, you know, note to our listeners, this is, this is very, very different from the way I, <laughs> we usually do it. Usually I am at my own house in front of my laptop with a microphone in my face. And, you know, William is over here probably right here. just staring at the computer. <laughs> That's right. Rather than, you know, the three of us sitting in chairs. But this is, this is very nice. And I kind of wish I could have people, you know, all in the same place so I could get body language and talk right. to people. So we need a patron to give lots to our Patreon so we can fly people in for interviews. Yes. That's what we need. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, patreon.com slash conlangery for that, you know. We, uh, we don't have a whole lot of money coming in. We have a little bit. Well, you need to set Badger up as the official mascot, and then, you know, yes. people will do oh, almost anything for a cat. Anything. Cat, <laughs> cat is sitting on my lap. If you want the cat to be sitting on my lap for all episodes. Right. Then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could put that up as a, as a, as a milestone goal. But anyway, all that aside, Thank you so much, Britton, for heading up this, this project and doing the, the, the Conlanging movie. Honestly, this is something that I wanted to do for a long time, but I had no idea, like, how to get it done and how to fund it. So the fact that we have someone who has experience doing film, uh, and especially your husband has, 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 uh, experience doing the editing, Josh over here, um, who's been, pointing cameras at us the whole time, moving the one camera around <laughs> from side to side. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's, um, it's really great, I think. And I think it's, it's a really great project, uh, for the conlanging community and to get the idea of conlanging out there more. I really, well, I'm very appreciative to the, to the podcast for, being a part of it in this meta way, <laughs> letting us talk about it, but also agreeing to be, to show that, you know, who, who you are. I mean, yes. people know your voices, but they don't necessarily know what you look like. So, right. so we're spreading the news. That's what I want to do with the film. And by doing it this way, we got a little bit more news out there. So there we go. Thank you yes. so much. All right. And uh, thank you, Britton. And I'm going to say happy Conlanger. Thank you for listening to Conlanger. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. 
Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. All of those are conlangery. And if you would like to hear your conlang featured on the top of the show, you can look at our contribute page. It has the instructions for what you need to translate and how to send it to me. Conlangery's web space is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our music is by Null Device. <laughs>